Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Although we often think of the modern culture of consumerism as an export from the United States and a product of capitalism, long before today's era, people were enjoying the benefit of soft shoes, beautiful cloth, and exceptional goods. Shopping has long been an important part of community and identity, essential to societies even though only recently people have been a part of the middle class capable of affording the mass consumption of today's world. Today we talk about the history of consumption, capitalism, and the economy, and to do that we first speak with historian Frank Trentman, author of the new book, Empire of Things. Frank illustrates the history of consumerism and helps us understand what things mean to us as humans. Then in the second half of today's show, we talk with Lawrence Malone, professor of economics at Hartwick College, about his work on the essential Adam Smith. Dr. Malone helps us think in a broader context about Adam Smith's thinking on capitalism, economic growth, and the real meaning of the invisible hand, and how all of those ideas still apply today, hundreds of years later. This is The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie. Enjoy episode number 95. out by talking about the common story we are told in history classes and books about how our consumer societies of today started, you know, in industrial Europe. Is that the case? Is consumer society mainly an Anglo-Saxon idea? Did it originate in industrial revolution of Britain or otherwise? Mm. Well, there are two stories, really, that are dominant in sort of main textbook accounts. One story is pretty straightforward and starts after the Second World War, and that's really an, an American story. So the idea that America, the United States, is the first consumer society, reaches affluence in the 20s and 30s, and then after the Second World War, supplants the old European empires and installs consumer society. That's one story. The second story is one about mass production, and there the idea is that the Industrial Revolution, by allowing standardization and mass manufacturing of goods, allows 
cheaper products to emerge, and that then widens the market. Sometimes the second story is adopted by Marxists, who see this all as artificial desires being planted on the proletariat. But nonetheless, there's an agreement that the Industrial Revolution is central. Now, both stories have significant problems, empirical problems as well as theoretical problems. The first problem is, speaking about the Industrial Revolution story, that, well, initially, the Industrial Revolution is a very slow, gradual process that really only gets going in the late 18th century with steam engine, but mass manufacturing takes a little while first in textiles and then, you know, with Ford and the production of his motor car in the early 20th century. But if you look at consumption and the goods that enter households, that's already happened. So there is, you know, popular demand, for instance, for textiles, for Indian cottons in the late 17th century and throughout the 18th century, long before the first steam engine gets going. So there's a problem here. Goods, consumer goods are circulating well before industrial technologies hit the ground. And the reason for that is you can produce very attractive, relatively cheap consumer goods in small workshops that do not need an industrial revolution. And those workshops were in place in India particular on the western coast. Now, briefly on the, on the first story, the idea that consumer society is really an American export after the Second World War, well, the problem we have with that story is, of course, that if you look around and travel in the world today, consumption is everywhere. It's in China as well as in Japan. It's not just an Anglo-Saxon phenomenon. And if you look at other countries, um, it becomes clear that there are different pathways to reaching a consumer society. So Japan, for instance, and also Germany, develop consumer demand with the help of savings programs rather than credit or the credit card. And that has its own national story. So we shouldn't just see consumption and the desire for goods as something that comes from the outside. Many societies, including West Africa and East Africa in the 18th century, already were dynamic consumer cultures. Right. And that's a really interesting angle in your book, because I think it's so common to see the mass consumer societies of today as really just emulating the United States consumer society. What do you think about about that viewpoint? Well, I mean, obviously, America, when it was the dominant world power, inevitably set certain standards for taste, for cultural products, and inevitably, a great power like that had certain emulators and envy. But at the same time, we must remember that American culture was hugely controversial. And into the 1960s, many Europeans, intellectuals, but also politicians, church authorities, and indeed many parents thought American culture was really not very civilized, and one should treat it with a great deal of caution and be at most selective. So I think that we have to remember. It's not that everyone just automatically wanted to follow the United States. The other thing perhaps to say is that America is not the only society that sets 
standards or norms of what people consider to be a good standard of living. So, for example, India today, you have an expanding middle class, but in addition to the middle class spending on goods, there continues to be a considerable emphasis on the sociability that comes with consumption of using gifts to extend your personal network and to reinforce family ties that are much more than the American nuclear family. The one other thing I would probably say is that America may well have overreached its high point as a consumer society. In the 50s and 60s, you know, when people thought of throwaway items or one-way bottles, plastic, they naturally thought of the United States. But if you actually sift through the rubbish bins of many West European countries today, you'll find more plastic than in the United States. So it's no longer that the United States is in the pole position. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And so one kind of idea regarding the history of consumerism is whether it followed mass production, like we had the ability to produce a lot of goods cheaply for enabling a consumer society, and then that enabled mass consumption, or it happened in the reverse order. How do you see that kind of balance? Mm. Well, your mass production does matter. And the workplace and the transformation of production in the late 20th century. But if you ask where have the biggest gains been in terms of factory production, it's really iron and steel. It's not consumer goods initially that are the driving force of industrial societies. It's you know the tracks for railroads, things like that. Mm-hmm. Your second point about should we reverse the causation and see mass consumption as the driver behind production, well, Adam Smith famously in The Wealth of Nations in 1776 said that consumption is the sole and only end of all production. And there is truth to that. If there is no demand, well, people wouldn't produce things. You wouldn't get very far as a business if you don't have any customers. So there has to be some kind of demand. At the same time, I think one shouldn't overplay a single causation that goes from consumption to industrial revolution, as some historians have tried to do. If you look at the demand for textiles, so um, the Indian cottons, or say for porcelain from China, yes, that is quite important. And it's important for taste and it's important for innovation because printing skills, for example, dyeing and producing goods in Europe that could emulate these Asian exotic novelties was very important in making these smaller industries dynamic. But as a total share of the whole economy, that's still only a relatively small slice So if it had just been demand for exotic goods, you probably wouldn't have had an industrial revolution. There are other developments in science and technology that are just as important. Well, one thing that I get from reading your book is that this drive for novelty 
has been with us for a really long time as part of human nature. What are your thoughts on where that comes from and its role in creating the modern consumer societies of today? That's a fascinating question because in a way it goes to the core of what historians do and also debates about what changes and what stays constant in human nature. Now, people have always consumed, if you don't eat, you die. And people have always had things, be it tools or ritual objects that had particular magical properties. And long before people had air conditioning or central heating, and indeed had often to worry about famines and starvation, people nonetheless spend considerable amounts of time and money on consumer objects. So that's, in that sense, it's been a constant of human history. Nonetheless, there's some very, very important qualitative as well as quantitative changes. So one is that institutions and ideas until, well, the 15th, 16th century were deeply suspicious, in fact, of novelty and the pursuit of novelty and certainly of luxury and anything that came under that rubric for the simple reason that ancient philosophers and then also Christian writers believed that things would be a distraction from the pure spiritual self of the individual and that individuals, according to Plato, or Augustine, later for the early Christians, that individuals, in their views, should focus on a higher spiritual development. So things needed to be placed in check, and institutions should make sure that people weren't corrupted by things. Towns and communities were also worried that if one section of the population suddenly desired what their superiors had, you might, in fact, start a competitive cycle of overspending that would ruin the economy and future population of those towns. So what happened was most authorities put in place legislation, so-called sumptuary legislation, that fined or punished people for wanting a special kind of cloth, or a special kind of marriage ceremony, a bed that had unnecessary ornamentation, uh, particular rare kinds of furs, or fashionable shoes. So appearing with those would land you in prison or get you a hefty, hefty fine. What happened in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century is that institutions gradually found these not only very hard to enforce, but institutions started to come to terms with demand for consumer objects and small luxuries by their populations. And so the sumptuary legislations were rolled back. Why did this happen? Well, one reason is a very, very important cultural sea change in which first in Holland and Britain, but then more widely, People revisited this idea that things were distractions from the true human pursuit of higher spiritual things. And several factors came together. One was that Christians themselves started to make the argument that since God had created the world in all his riches, surely he wanted Christians to go out there 
on sea voyages to distant places and find new products and develop through ingenious new methods new products. So in that sense, novelty suddenly had the stamp of divine authority. But secondly, Enlightenment philosophers like David Hume and others in the 18th century also developed arguments that in fact the pursuit of what they called modest luxuries was a good thing for society as a whole because if a society became more innovative to satisfy these new fashions, it was developing and it was growing and there was more money to go around for everyone and people would mingle in cities where there were more shops and more fashions and being in cities invited more sociability, club life, and what people then called civilization. So you now had an, a new cultural orientation towards things in which things weren't seen as something external, corruptive, but perhaps even part of what made us human. And if you think about it, it's not such a silly idea. We, we would be really hopeless as humans if we didn't have access to things from the pen to write a letter to a game boy to play a game to a bed to lie on comfortably. If you just took all these things away, it would be a miserable existence. So was it that society was becoming more secular at the time or was this really a revolution in religious thought? making it so that the pursuit of material items or material novelty was not in contrast to spiritual pursuits. Um, an, older, an older theory very much tried to understand this as a process of secularization. So religious prejudice fell away and people stopped going to church and instead they went to the mall or the supermarket. I think that this is far too simple, and particularly from a point of view of the early 21st century, where we've seen a revival of religious life and interest in religious matters in many different parts of the world, which can't be written off as backward or traditional societies that have no interest in consumption. After the Iranian revolution, Khomeini initially started a campaign against all forms of entertainment, closing down cinemas, trying to abolish fashion, and so forth. But that proved very difficult to do. And as you and many of your listeners know, Iran in the last decade has had a very vibrant movie culture, for example. So religious societies, being in a religious society doesn't automatically mean people are opposed to uh, consumer culture. More often than not, it has meant that religion has turned consumer culture into an ally. And we have a lot of examples of this symbiosis from particular Muslim versions of the Barbie doll to department stores and malls in the Middle East, and we could go on. Similarly for Christians, I think it's important to recognize that you know, Christianity is, of course, diverse, but there are Christian movements, particularly Pentecostalism, which is very happy with a more materialist orientation among their believers and which sees business success and jewels and a luxury car as a sign of divine approval. 
yeah, I could go on on that topic for a while because I think it's really fascinating. But I wanted to just talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned department stores a moment ago. Could you talk a little bit about where the kind of modern shopping mall experience comes from? Because I think the consumer society experience in the United States and in Canada, where I'm at, is so deeply envisioned as being linked to the shopping mall. It's kind of the iconic symbol, especially in North America. Could you kind of place that in in context? Shopping is important and consumption is more than shopping, but shopping is a very important public performance and important for its aesthetic and emotional elements, as well as for the product that people buy over the counter. Now, the shopping mall can be seen as a successor of an earlier generation of stores and the department stores of the tree themselves were children of experiments with new forms of retail, such as discount halls to so-called collecting stores for cheap goods, which traveled around, so which would go to one city or be at the outside of the city because many of these traders didn't have permission to set up store inside the city. But people moved around with their wares and sold them at rock-bottom prices already in the early 19th century. And you have the first experiments with a display of goods marked with visible prices, which customers could handle themselves also in the early 19th century. So three, four generations before the big department stores like the Bon Marché in Paris or Selfridges owned by an American, which started just after 1900 in London. Now, what's new about these places? Well, each individual element, actually, you can find in earlier periods. So we can find the pricing of goods, we can find display, we can find home delivery, etc. What is new, though, is the sheer size and cultural position of these enormous stores right in the middle of big cities. So they would take up an entire block and because of their enormous large glass windows and nighttime lighting, they would have a stage setting almost for the goods that were on display. Zola, Emil Zola, who spent a year or so of his life researching the Bourmarché and then wrote what remains the best and most interesting and factually illuminating novel on the department store, Au Bonheur des Dames, I think the English is A Lady's Paradise. He follows women through these stores And in the novel, gives us an idea of what made these department stores so controversial, but equally attractive and tempting at the same time. And a lot of it has to do with gender. So for women at the time, the department store was one additional public space where they could walk, show themselves and be seen uh, without close supervision. So that was naturally attractive. At the same time, you have fears by male authorities and scientists and the police that, in fact, women, because of their 
biological makeup were particularly susceptible to the temptations of goods and indeed the temptations of traders and young men, single men, who would roam about in these department stores. So there's a long debate in the late 19th century whether menstruating women were more likely to be shoplifters, which sounds ridiculous by today's science, but, you know, caused repeated scientific debates as well as criminal investigations. In that sense, the cultural importance is quite important. If we scratch a little bit, we see that the department store was perhaps in many ways much more banal than this. So most department stores weren't as big and culturally appealing to the middle classes and upper middle classes as in the Bon Marché or Selfridges. In German-speaking countries, most department stores were in provincial cities, quite small and often selling to the working class. In many of the early department stores, it wasn't so easy to just be a window shopper, let alone to touch, be allowed to touch products. Selfridges, in fact, the founder of the eponymous store, when he arrived in London, he thought it would be a good idea to just walk about, visit different department stores incognito and form an assessment of how these stores were operating and what worked and what didn't. And the first thing he encountered in one of the stores was that the security person at the main entrance door just raised his hand and stopped him right then and there and said, what do you want? And Selfridge said, well, I'm just going to look about. And he says, no looking, just buying. So many stores had restrictions on shoppers who just wanted to put things on or touch things but not buy and had sales personnel in place which still controlled access to these goods. Now, progressively in the early and mid-20th century, those restrictions fell away and there was much greater trust and confidence in what shoppers could do themselves. But that's, again, only true for most West European countries. In the Soviet Union, and indeed in Russia, after the Soviet Union fell apart, I was in, in Moscow in 92-93, and it was still the norm that a customer would have to walk up to a counter and tell the shop assistants what exactly you wanted to look at. And then the shop assistants would get that particular item and show it to you. There was no opportunity to browse between different product assortments. Hmm. So what do you see as some of the biggest similarities in the experience of consumption now versus 200 years ago? Hmm. Well, first of all, is we, we're consuming much, much more. <laughs> That's perhaps self-evident, but it's worth saying because the magnitude of the amount of things and services we consume and we take for granted and don't even think about any longer is phenomenal. I sometimes talk to people who say, oh, I never go shopping. I'm not a great consumer. How can I possibly consume much more than people did 200 years ago? And I have to point out that a lot of things they consume and they buy, they no longer register because 
uh, to take some examples, their energy bill just goes straight out of their bank account. Or they have contracts for multimedia and IT, which again, they don't think of as shopping. Shopping, they think of as a physical act of going into a department store and buying an object. But of course, if you just open the front door and you look around, what do you see? You see lots of lorries and vans doing deliveries with boxes filled with stuff, be it books or CDs or clothing or whatnot. So the amount, the amount of consumption is just enormous. If you look at a wardrobe in the United Kingdom today, on average, each person has 100 clothing items and something like half never leave the wardrobe. Now, that's not, strictly speaking, being consumed until it's worn out, as an older view of consumption had it. But nonetheless, it means buying goods that have used up a lot of resources in the process of making them that then lie around untouched. So the amount of consumption is very, very important. The second thing that has changed is that consumption is much more democratic. That doesn't mean it's equal. Far from it. Different groups, different social groups, different generational groups have different consumer cultures. But consumption is now so widespread that it's part really of our DNA, irrespective of where you are on the social ladder. And that is fundamentally different. So the poorer groups, elderly people, which had been at the margins of consumer society, in many rich societies, they're now just as much at the center as employed workers or the middle, middle classes. Now, what about the aesthetics, though? I mean, some people say we're right in the middle of a shift, a historic shift away from things to experience, or as people have it, from stuff to fluff, and that many people are just bored. They have so many things they don't like. They want to get rid of them. They want to simplify their lives. The recent popular bestseller in the United States giving advice on how to fold your clothing appropriately and to economize and improve the quality of your life in the process and save the planet are good examples. Now, there is, of course, a lot of debate about this, and there are indeed some groups that have joined movements to simplify, to cut back, to buy less, and to use fewer resources. But if you look at it in the round, these are at the moment still marginal trends, I would say. They're not part of mainstream society. And if you look at the numbers and statistics about commodities and services, yes, services have expanded disproportionately, but that doesn't mean the commodity boom has gone down. I don't mean commodities as in agricultural products. I mean goods for sale. So if you look at the ocean trade and container ships, they're getting bigger and they are moving about more containers than ever. And those are not empty. They're filled with stuff. The second thing on this perhaps to say is that in the past, it's not that societies before 2008 didn't also invest a lot of time and energy in experiences. A lot of consumption for centuries 
has been all about experiences. So think of the leisure and entertainment parks on Long Island and elsewhere a hundred years ago, but you can go back to the 18th century and think of the pleasure gardens uh, or forerunners of cinema where people used paintings to give people the illusion of moving to foreign cultures. All of those things were about experiences. So it's not that experiences in the past didn't matter. And in fact, many things we pursue and we want because of the experiences and the emotional kick they provide us with. So experiences are not something new. And to add to this, we also have to remember that services and experiences are not virtual. They're not free of material. A lot of things need to be produced and consumed to produce these services. So just to take two examples, your French people go shopping and they go and eat out in restaurants a, a lot. But to do that, they need to get there. And they do that by driving a car in most instances. So some people have done calculations saying that in a single year, French people drive 52 billion kilometers to do their shopping. Now, shopping is a service, but 52 billion kilometers mean a lot of tarmac and a lot of rubber on the car and a lot of cars. Similarly, IT services. So when people think about gaming or playing on the computer, you know, those things, again, they're not virtual. I mean, we call them virtual, but they are underpinned by material resources and cooling units and big computers, etc. To stay with France, it's been calculated that 15% of what the service sector uses in terms of electricity consumption, 15% is now purely for IT. Now, that's a lot of energy. Yeah, and I think that's a real disconnect that the idea of a service society or a service-based economy instead of a manufacturing economy faces. Because like you're saying, just making sure that all of the material inputs and the transportation, everything is available to produce the service sector economy, it requires a lot of energy and a lot of resources. And one of the ongoing themes of our show is on energy and the economy. And the first law of thermodynamics is that energy is neither created nor destroyed. But the idea of consumption is one of using something up. So could you talk a little bit about the meaning of being a consumer and how that's changed over time? Yes. No, that's the original meaning precisely of consumption. It comes from consumer, the Latin, and it is to exhaust or to use something up. So a German economist called Russia in the 19th century put it very famously, and he said, you know, a coat is not consumed when you buy it. It's consumed when the last few bits of the fabric are falling apart and it's no longer a coat. That's when it's consumed. So that was the the older meaning. The Japanese in 1900 didn't have a word for consumption, but were in the midst of modernizing their society. So consumption and many other keywords, they looked around for ways of translating this, and they came up with a very interesting combination of two words, short and he, which carry both meanings. So on the one hand, there's acquisition, but on the other hand, it's using up. 
or wasting something. Now, how does this relate to energy? You mentioned the first law of thermodynamics. Now, that's true. You know, energy only changes its state and appearance. It doesn't just disappear. But crucially and importantly for consumer culture, of course, energy in the process of producing goods doesn't all end up in the final product. A lot of it finds other outlets along the way. And in that sense, any consumer good, if we really wanted to know about its ecological footprint, we can't just weigh the metal in a cell phone or so. We would want to know what other materials had to be mined and how much energy, say coal, had to be used to fire up iron and steel mills and similar things. And a lot of energy, in fact, is diffused into the atmosphere or into byproducts, etc., and into waste where it ends up. And that's very important. Some people are, I'm an optimist, I should say, some people are much more optimistic than I am and believe that we are just around the corner to a circular economy where consumption is so perfectly integrated into production that the old coat will always find a new life, be it as a curtain or inside some pillowcase in little pellets. And there's a lot, I agree, that can be done to make consumption much more efficient and sustainable than it is now. Nonetheless, we have to remember many products we use can't be endlessly recycled. Paper is a good example. I think you can reuse paper and still print a decent newspaper on it four or five times, but then that paper is worn out. So in many product cycles, there comes an end to it. Having said that, you know, there's a lot we can do by thinking about the connections between energy and consumption. And one of them is to be much more honest and transparent about all the energy that is needed to maintain what we consider sort of basic services of a normal lifestyle, such as central heating, air conditioning, having hot water, multiple showers a day, etc., which really were quite abnormal and unusual. And people would have said, how weird to have multiple showers a day 100 years ago. Now, there's a history to that, which is important. And it's interesting how energy, in a way, has been written out of our discussion about consumer culture. It's treated as something quite separate and apart from it. And when people think about the products they buy and whether they're sustainable or not, they rarely connect it with all the energy that they depend on in their ordinary daily life in terms of mobility, in terms of comfort, in terms of convenience. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of that has to do with the framing in economics of how consumers choose to do what they do. And we're coming into just our last few questions here. But I wanted to make sure that we touched on thinking about the consumer in today's economics. And there have been many Nobel Prizes in recent years to those who have kind of started to demonstrate or debunk some of the limitations in kind of rational choice agents that are used in economic models of these utility maximizing agents. But yet those basic assumptions and 
models of how consumers make choices are still at the heart of the models used for the World Bank or the IMF. And so do you think that recent behavioral economists are going far enough in revising how economics as a profession views the consumer? I'm very pleased for the economists that they get some new ideas, I should first of all say. And I think any innovation that takes us away from a simplified model of rational utility maximizing individual is a good thing. But nonetheless, behavioral economics in recent years only goes one step beyond that. And what it says effectively is that rationality can be bounded and that people sometimes do things that conflict with what the model of the rational utility maximizing individual would predict. And it it doesn't always work like that because people have different feelings about gain and loss, for example. And that's all true, but that doesn't get you very far. And my main worry with the behavioral is that it, for all its innovation, it still treats the problem of consumption ultimately as one of individual psychology. And that, from a historical point of view, is not very useful because, of course, people have their own individual psyche, but how we develop preferences, how we develop habits are not the product of one's own psychological states. Um, These are social processes and often mediated by institutions in which we operate. So habits, I'm much happier to talk about habits than behavior. Behavior has a sort of ring to it that it's individual and then we develop a little nudge and then the individual will change his or her behavior. Whereas habits exist as social phenomena which are not just mine or yours, but they are widely distributed in society. Now, there can be competing habits, but the example of the shower, clearly we've developed habits of personal cleanliness because of social and institutional and cultural changes. And if we wanted to intervene in transforming people's use of water, say, or energy, the energy needed to produce that hot water, we shouldn't leaning at the level of individual behavior. We may want to intervene in the social relations and institutional context that produce these habits. And to give a historical example, we can turn, for example, to Japan in the early 20th century. Japan had something called the daily life reform movement, which was partly supported by the state, but it involved housewives organizations as well as architects. And so it was a much wider social movement, which set its goal of transforming the habits of eating, cooking, spending time with the family at home, and in the process also transforming the home. And they campaigned for standing up in kitchens rather than being on your knees, of shifting from cooking with dirty coal to gas and electricity and things like that. None of that happened because of a little bit of nudging. I mean, these were well-orchestrated, well-funded campaigns that intervened in how people thought 
about life and a standard of living. And in the process, they transformed what people thought was a good standard of living. And I think it's, it's interventions such as this that we need to remember today when we're talking about different ways of making our societies more sustainable. If we just leave it up to nudging, we ignore that states and social movements and cons organized consumer movements in the past played a very, very important role in changing what people thought of as a normal way of life. And these interventions were one reason why we live the way we live now. So for governments to just raise their hands in alarm when anyone wants to talk about intervening in people's daily life because they say, oh, we can't do that. It's up to the private individual. It's a bit disingenuous because governments played a big role in the past. Right. And before we get into a closing question, I wanted to ask about, you know, the role of state services in the consumer society. I think a lot of critiques and focus on analyzing the consumer society so much look at, you know, the amount of goods that might be in an individual's closet or all the things that you're purchasing, maybe at a shopping mall or online. But all of the kind of large state apparatuses and, and government services are also part of that consumer society framework. Yes, absolutely. And that point extends, in fact, into people's pockets and how they live their lives because public consumption, which refers to social spending, so think of everything from child benefits to public housing to state pensions to unemployment benefits and so forth, are a considerable amount of money that frees up spending in other respects for many households. That, of course, has expanded enormously since the 1940s. So I think in the OECD, so in the club of rich countries today, the average is something like 20% of GDP goes to social spending. Now, I'm acutely aware, talking to you from England, the land of austerity measures, that many governments are trying very, very hard to cut back on that contribution. From a welfare point, many of these types of social spending are very important, and they obviously have made societies in the 50s, 60s, and 70s much fairer and better societies. Nonetheless, we need to note from an ecological point of view that these types of social spending also played their role in raising the level of consumption by getting impoverished groups and the elderly in particular onto the stage of consumer culture. We wouldn't have seen the boom in consumption in the 60s and 70s where virtually every household now had a TV, the majority had a car and drove to sunny lands for their summer holiday without that contribution from the state. That doesn't mean just because it's ecologically unfriendly we should now cut all social spending, but what it does mean is that if we want to have a serious debate about where consumption is going and its consequences, we need to include the state and public spending as one factor in that dynamic. 
So to close out, I wanted to ask, you know, first, what were some surprises or one or two aspects that when you were working on this project really stood out? And then if you can talk about where the consumer society goes next. Yes. Well, I would say two things I particularly was fascinated by. One was about colonial and imperial history. The second is about the elderly consumers. Now, in imperial and colonial history, there has been a habit of seeing consumer culture as something Western that then just spreads, and particularly spreads through exotic goods like coffee, sugar, and cocoa from west across the Atlantic to to the east, so ending up in Europe. And there's a lot of truth in that, but nonetheless, there's an equally important north-south relationship, both in Latin America, um, where exotic goods like mate, a tea from an evergreen is moved southward from Central America into Latin America into completely new markets and people drink it in sociable manner, passing around often highly decorated cups and there's some nice pictures in the book Empire of Things of that and to be with other people. Not so dissimilar from coffee or tea tea in European cities. The North-South Axis, I think, is very important, and that extends to Western East Africa, which already before being colonized by Europeans had their own indigenous consumer cultures. And indeed, many European merchants in the mid 19th century started complaining about just how demanding African consumers could be. So I think that's one, one thing that is very interesting because it it puts a question mark behind the idea that consumer culture is just Western and moves in a top-down way. The second thing I've been fascinated by is the emergence of the elderly consumer. Now, when we think of consumer culture, we easily think of teenagers, genes, and popular music. And they indeed deserve a role. But just as important, I would say, and especially important now as we're aging societies, is the arrival of the elderly consumer. This starts in the United States, and we can trace that to early residential parks with their own leisure and entertainment facilities for elderly to the 1930s already. But it then really gets going in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, spreading also to Western Europe and to Japan. And it's remarkable, I think, that today in some of the richest societies, like Germany or Japan, pensioners are just as active as consumers, as well as rich as their children and grandchildren. And that's been a huge transformation because still by the early 20th century, to be elderly was seen to be passive and on the way out. And elderly people were seen as people who shouldn't exercise too much, certainly shouldn't have sex and fun in a way that was for the younger generation. By the 50s and 60s, you have a sea change and arguments that see elderly people as just as potentially active and fun-loving groups as younger cohorts. 
I would say that's a huge social and cultural revolution. And then where do you see the consumer society going next? Ah, where's the consumer society going next? Well, unfortunately, I don't think that we are in the midst of what some people call dematerialization. If we look at material flow data, it suggests we are still right in the middle of the empire of things, accumulating more goods and objects. So I think that is continuing. I think the big question will be to what degree virtual forms of consumption via IT will replace the more material, physical stuff where people really want possessions or where that's really just complementing our existing culture. At the moment, my bet would be on the latter. I don't think virtual shopping, for example, has undermined let alone eliminated physical retail stores. If we look at retail, all recent developments have been that internet providers have discovered people ultimately also want physical stores, and so they've opened their own. And some physical stores have realized that, well, with the internet, we can sell more stuff, so they're doing both. So it's a sort of double-barreled strategy, if you want. I don't think people have fallen out of love with objects, objects remain a central part of people's identities and lives. What I hope, being an optimist, we will see in the next decade is a much more honest and direct debate about the kinds of lifestyles we may want to live in the future. At the moment, at least in Britain, Debate about sustainability is mainly about technological fixes and efficiency. So the idea is we will keep on living the way we do now. We just want to do it more efficiently. And efficiency is a good thing. But I think equally, it would be very interesting to have a more critical, self-reflective debate about the different kinds of lifestyles that might be possible and to have an honest debate about some of the consequences of our current lifestyles. U.S. consumers are racking up credit card debt at a rate higher than pre-recession levels. A new WalletHub.com credit card debt survey found that U.S. consumers added $34.4 billion in credit card debt during the second quarter of 2016. That $34.4 billion is nearly 80% higher than the average amount that was added since the 2007 recession. WalletHub CEO said, The fact that U.S. consumers racked up a record-setting $34.4 billion in credit card debt during the second quarter of 2016 therefore represents serious cause for concern. U.S. consumers aren't just adding debt, they're also not paying it off fast enough. 
Consumers are on track to hit $1 trillion in credit card debt for the first time in history, and the average family with credit card debt will owe about $8,500. Household debt in Canada has skyrocketed. In 1990, families had debts equal to 89% of their annual disposable income. Today, the ratio stands at 165%. If you look at what happened in the 1980s and 90s, you see a dramatic upscaling of the American dream. What used to be an aspiration for a comfortable middle-class standard of living. A small house with a white picket fence, 2.2 kids, a car, and has morphed into widespread desires for McMansions, upscaling of vehicles. There's been a, a dramatic upscaling uh, to an affluent style of life. Comfort is no longer enough. People want luxury. I call it the new consumerism, and it involves a dramatic shifting in the kinds of aspirations that people have all across the income spectrum. We are a social species and we follow the cues of people around us and if people around us are getting an extra house and an extra boat and they look cool because of that, we feel like we have to do that and then one on top of it and then we feel like we've uh, gone up the status rung. Our entire society has been promoting conspicuous consumption and more stuff via marketing and via uh, media and television. Um, and we're sending this, these cues to China and India to try and live like us. And we really don't get happier with more of this stuff. An estimated 42% of the developing world's workers are now middle class. And our projections show this could grow by 390 million more by 2017. That would make up more than half of the developing world's workforce. China today is already the world's second largest economy. It accounts for about 13% of the global um, GDP. The core consumer group today who are actually consuming is 150 million people which we call the urban middle class where the income now is at or above 10,000 US dollars. It becomes more convenient and by having a credit card um, I become more impulsive to buy things. More and more Filipinos like Cami have gotten used to using credit cards to pay for their purchases both business owners and financial institutions are taking advantage. And the same is true in many emerging economies across Asia, where non-mortgage consumer credit has surged to more than a trillion and a half US dollars. And chances are that figure will keep rising. Banks and credit card companies are betting on rising incomes and a growing middle class. They've also stepped up lending for cars, motorcycles, and other big ticket items. Even business owners are coming up with their own payment plans. We are going to the next generation of uh, financing. It's not credit card, but it's outright financing. You come and apply and say, I need this. This is for even the lower level people who are quote-unquote not qualified to get a card. Some are concerned that this push for consumer loans may be happening too fast, too soon. And that many borrowers will wind up spending much more than they can afford and default. Like tens of millions of Brazilians, Marcos Crispin joined the so-called lower middle class over the last decade and became a consumer. And banks were ready and eager to give people like him loans and credit cards. And it worked perfectly for a time. Now the spending spree is over. He's unemployed and the hard time to repay the debts has come. In Brazil, the credit card interest rates go beyond 190% per year. 
Hoje, esses cerca de 40 milhões de consumidores que entraram no mercado... The 40 million new consumers that joined the consumer market over the last decade now have debts, so the bank themselves are now being much more strict to give credit. So there are less consumers coming to the market. The expansion of consumer credit was a key part of Brazil's growth strategy over the last decade, but now many analysts say that consumers' difficulties to repay their debts is yet another reminder that Brazil urgently needs to create and develop a path less reliant on the growth of middle-class consumption. Next up on episode number 95, we talk with Lawrence Malone about his work on the essential Adam Smith and how insights on the human economy from the 18th century still describe us to this day. I'm teaching a seminar this semester on Smith, Marx, and Keynes, and one of the ways I think to best access those people is to try to get right into their world, and so all we do is we read those texts in their original with no secondary literature at all required for the course. And so one of the ways that's interesting in terms of accessing Smith's world is I tell the students that... At that point in time, it was possible to read everything that there was out there to read in the English language. And I don't have much doubt that Smith tried to do that. Marx tried to do that, and we know what happened to him in the British Library <laughs> in terms of his own health. But I think one of the things that when you read Smith, particularly the moral sentiments and the wealth of nations, what you find is the world that he was looking at in terms of its variation, there was a great deal more variation relative to how people were living in the kind of social configurations. Think about it. In the 1750s, 60s, 70s, 80s, people were still striking out to far corners of the globe and then coming back and reporting their discoveries of these, today what we would call different anthropological arrangements of how people were living, the ways in which they conducted not just their daily affairs, but primarily in terms of how they met their basic needs. And there was a great deal of curiosity. I liken it to the current fascination with whatever paparazzi turn up in terms of celebrities on the TMZ website or on Entertainment Tonight. People at Smith's time had the same fascination with what was going on and the differentiation that was found among humans and the way that they were interacting. And one of the links for this for me is actually in Smith's Wealth of Nations, because in the middle of the book, there are five books in the Wealth of Nations, as Smith divided up, or he called it five books. And the middle book is a mere 40 pages long, and it's actually a stage theory of history. The stage theory of history is fascinating because it's actually a description in four stages of how people were living in the world at that time. Hmm. And he starts with a somewhat primitive state of hunters and gatherers, of which there are many native populations uh, across the continents, especially. And then he moves on through a mercantile, a feudal, and then what he calls the most advanced stage is commercial society. And references he made to his own way of life and 
the organization of society, particularly around the economy, were always in terms of the commercial society, not capitalism. The term capitalism had not yet been coined. I think it's an interesting point you brought up about how the information was kind of cloistered in these ivory towers, if you will, those personal libraries. I'm wondering how that's changed now and how his ideas and the ideas of economic system and systems and development have dispersed that as the knowledge has become easier to get a hold of and through the interconnected communications that we have presently, how has that helped to change or augment the ideas that Adam Smith originally put forth? Seth, that's a great observation because Smith was among the elite and you would imagine that he spent in double digits the number of hours a day he sat just quietly reading he was very reclusive. We have very few details of his life. He lived with his mother and then with another relative who basically took care of him. So he never had to worry about preparing meals on his own. And when we read about a lot of the intellectual figures of, of that time, you hear similar stories. And so your word cloister is perfect. So you would expect that in today's terms, we would have much greater access to information. I joke with my students a lot that if I had to do my dissertation now, I could probably do it from my desk and get all of the information that I ultimately collected by going to major libraries around the northeast of the United States for the better part of two years. I know that a lot of the data I used because I wrote a dissertation in economic history, it was available in that way. So certainly the information is available to us. I'm not clear, though, whether, whether we take advantage of that information. And you mentioned how Smith was writing about his whole view of the world and that idea of progress from hunting, pasturage, farming to commerce. And you see that idea of the world mirrored in our development policies, the ideas of how underdeveloped countries can then become like the way we live in the United States or all mirrored in that way of thinking. How much of that whole model owes itself to Smith's history of the world that he put out in The Wealth of Nations? I'm not sure, Justin, whether people are cognizant of that. You encounter Smith in international economic policy because he coins the term absolute advantage where people in one place will have advantages in producing something relative to people in another place. And those advantages really deal with nature and the natural environment by and large. But then he does accommodate for his discussions of the division of labor that ultimately they can be created by greater human dexterity and mental abilities and skills and such. But you don't usually see him come up in those terms, and people don't think of him in that way. My graduate school mentor was a very famous economist, Robert Heilbrunner, and he wrote a book very early on in his career called The Great Ascent. And from that book, many people began to refer to a ladder of development that countries or regions would climb and ascend, much like through Smith's stage theory of history of sorts. But many people found that that concept somewhat offensive, somewhat jingoistic, I suppose. And Heilbrunner always came under mixed reviews for it. Students loved it because it was very linear 
and gave people a sense of continuous progress. And people like that. They like mapping things. That's one of the lessons that Smith teaches us also is he wrote a great deal, especially in a very obscure essay he wrote entitled The History of Astronomy. It was one of the few things of his that survived. And in it, he gives a history from around 17, somewhere in the 1740s when he's writing it, of astronomy and astronomical discoveries up to that point. Kepler, Copernicus, Galileo. But the underbelly of the whole essay, which is about 20 pages long, is that it's really a theory of knowledge and how we discover. And what he said is we are prone to making taxonomies. So we are prone to classification. We are prone to explaining the world, to remove, really he says in that essay that we're, we're driven by anxiety. And so when there's something we can't explain like a solar eclipse at a very early point of human development, we don't calm our anxiety until we have an explanation for it. And that's what Heilbrunner was doing in his book, The Great Ascent. And that's, I think, what Smith was doing in the third book of The Wealth of Nations. He was creating a taxonomy of sorts for social configurations through historical time. That's very true. So often we think of Adam Smith as one of the founding fathers of capitalism, but maybe his ideas were not really the current form as we think of them and what we attribute to him. Maybe you could go back and kind of talk about what he really did create and what we now attribute to Adam Smith. That's where the problem comes in. I think so few people have read Smith. That becomes a problem. If you pick up an introductory economics textbook within the first 15 pages of any textbook you pick up, you will see the author introducing students to the economic way of thinking, and they will mention Adam Smith. And the, the one principle they will mention is the invisible hand. And most of those textbooks, and our listeners, and you folks can do it too, you just go to these textbooks, and it literally says the invisible hand of competition. And so the intent is to sort of romanticize the benefits of competition and the competitive context of the marketplace and to set the student up for learning about how markets work and bring terrific beneficial outcomes for all of us. And that's why mainly Smith gets embraced by people of conservative persuasions, especially with regard to their views of the economy and extolling the virtues of markets. They think, or they somehow they embrace this notion that the invisible hand means competition and that competition only brings beneficial outcomes. But if you read Smith, the, the invisible hand is mentioned implicitly in his theory of moral sentiments, and it's mentioned explicitly once in The Wealth of Nations, buried deep in the book. And it, it's a much more complex principle in his system and a very difficult one to explain, but that's mainly how people come to Smith in these days and what they think of him and what they know of him. And so in the conservative parts of my discipline, and I ask my students this every semester when we read the books, most of the students, what little they know of Adam Smith is they simply say the invisible hand. And the invisible hand is a much richer concept in his entire system. 
So let's go into a little bit of that complexity on the invisible hand and how it worked in Adam Smith's world versus how, as you were mentioning, some of the more conservative economic practitioners today and theorists see how it works. Well, you mentioned you had read the theory of moral sentiments to me. Right. So in the theory of moral sentiments, you can go through that book and there's references to the great watchmaker is one reference. There's references entitled uh, periodically the author of nature. Sometimes the author of nature in the middle of the sentence will have a capital A in author and a small n in nature. Then when he uses nature at a later point in perhaps that section of the book or in another chapter, in the middle of the sentence, the nature is capitalized. This was part of the struggle and the mystery that we have in Smith because he ordered that most of his extant writings would be burned as he was about to die. And so there's only a few things that really survive from him. The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which was published, The Wealth of Nations, which was published, this astronomy essay that I mentioned, this series of lectures on jurisprudence, which were taken by his students year to year to year and then passed on and revised, and they were found in an attic only a handful of decades ago, and they have since been published. But it was very clear, the biggest mystery about Smith is what he felt about the primary principle of order in the social universe. Did it require a deity or not? And in the theory of moral sentiments, there's a pretty clear sense because he uses those terms. He never uses the word God. But there is also a sense that the invisible hand might be linked to wrestling with that ultimate order provided in some ways by the intervention of some supreme being or a deity. In the wealth of nations, we don't get so much of a sense of that. The invisible hand is referenced in, in a passage about international exchange, international trade, and it does seem to have something to do with competition. But for Smith, Smith was very much, if you read the moral sentiments, he was also very much a utilitarian on some level. He was influenced by Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham, of course, was the person who gave us the expression, the greatest good for the greatest number. There's a lot of discussion of utility and utilitarian ideas about value in the moral sentiments. And that makes it much more complicated just in ensuring that the principle of greed perhaps is good, that it provides great outcomes for the rest of us. It's more along the lines of, to my reading, of Leibniz, where in some ways he's explaining the world around him and it's the best of all possible worlds. Now, just a little more on the invisible hand itself. My students last semester, last spring, we're reading a wonderful book by Alfred Chandler, who was the late eminent business historian at Harvard University, probably the best-known business historian in the world. And Chandler wrote this book called The Visible Hand. And the students who are, are in both classes had an interesting observation because they said the invisible hand is what the visible hand is not. So the visible hand for Chandler was the rise of the modern American corporation from 1850 onward 
and all of the controls that go into place, marketing and accounting and finance and research and development. And it's all in the firm, and the firm is really big, and it's expanding into national and international markets. And it's the visible hand of management and Taylorism and the rest. And the students this semester said to me quite simply, the invisible hand is not that. <laughs> and so it's not the visible hand. And I think what they meant as we drilled down on it is the invisible hand doesn't necessarily need to be explained as any one thing. It's the miracle that the complexity of a market can provide order akin in the physical universe to the law of gravity. And that for the most part, for the most part, it leads us not necessarily to beneficial outcomes for all, but outcomes that are best characterized by order instead of social chaos. And that's a lot more complex than just saying that the invisible hand justifies greed. Yes. Yes. Very, very much so. Very much so. And that's, again, that politicized dimension. Unless you read Smith and read both of those books, The Moral Sentiments and The Wealth of Nations, you're not going to get that sense. And so you're going to be running around with your Adam Smith tie in the financial world, in the financial capitals, Frankfurt, Wall Street, Tokyo, and you're going to be extolling the virtues of Adam Smith and competition and that what I'm doing is for the greater good. <laughs> so it seems almost like the invisible hand is kind of like the gravity of the market and the visible hand is, is almost the greed of business or the human side of it, the actual ambition that humans seem to demonstrate. Is that correct? Yeah, I think you could look at it that way. When I first studied Smith, it was in a graduate seminar at the New School in New York with Bob Heilbrunner. And I remember walking out very distinctly because the New School is in lower Manhattan. And I literally walked out on the street after our seminar from 4 to 5.30 in the afternoon. And I stood at the corner of 14th Street and 5th Avenue in New York, right where the school is. And as trite as it sounds, I stood there for about 10 minutes and I tried to imagine the complexity of what I was observing. And I tried to do a taxonomy. I tried to think of all of the elements that were at work. So there were cars, there was an intersection, there was some regulation with the street light, there were crosswalks with walk, don't walk, flashing signs. It was at rush hour, so people were moving and I could feel underneath my feet and underneath the sidewalk I could feel the rumble of the subway but I knew down with the subway there were electrical systems and now not at that time but now there's fiber optic networks or broadband internet and then I looked up at the buildings and I saw the lights and the skyscrapers and I thought of all these people up there doing whatever it was they're doing which I think is the whole point no one's in charge <laughs> no one and I said, is somebody in charge? I think David Dinkins was, or maybe it was Koch, was the mayor of New York City at that point. I'm thinking, okay, so is Ed Koch in charge? Is he in charge of all this? Because I mean, no, he's not in charge because I had worked in government policy for a few years before I went for graduate school in economics. And no, no one is in charge right now. Yet there's order. There might be an accident. A pedestrian might be hit by a taxi in front of me. It was starting to rain. Someone could catch a cold and die in a few days. All sorts of things could happen. 
but no one was predetermining or no one was in charge of what was going on at that particular moment. And I think that's what Smith does, especially in the theory of moral sentiments, when he looks at how we interact and how we make decisions and looks deep into our own psychology and experience. I think that's what the invisible hand is. It has a certain miraculous, unexplainable quality, ultimately, that some of us choose belief and to believe in a higher being. We're mere puppets, the whole question of free will versus determinacy. But to me, that's what the invisible hand was. The invisible hand was that moment in New York many years ago at the corner of 14th and 5th. <laughs> that's really interesting that you bring up faith and belief because very much believing in this system is what makes it go in so many ways. I'm wondering what the reaction was to Smith when he started coming out with these beliefs back in the 1750s. What what did people say when he started saying, just trust the economic system, trust to commerce, and it'll do you well? What, what did people say? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it quite went that far in his time. It'd be a really interesting study, actually, in terms of what you're suggesting, to try to ascertain what the production runs were of the books. So the Theory of Moral Sentiments went through six separate editions. It was the book that he kept revising from 1749 to 1790. The Wealth of Nations, it was a one-off. He worked on it for his whole life, but it was published in 1776, and then it stood. So you'd have to have a really good granular sense of people reading it and in what context they were reading it. Now we have to remember, even in terms of universities and education, there were no separations in the social sciences at that point. There was no psychology, because psychology doesn't come until our friends Freud and Jung and the rest of them. And so the discipline of psychology is maybe, for all intents and purposes, only about 120 years old. There was no sociology because there hadn't been a Max Weber yet. There's no political science, per se. There are people who are writing about politics. But really, there was one discipline, and it was political economy. And so you didn't talk about markets in isolation of the social reality and the power relationships that are bound up in them. But I don't, I don't have any sense of people giving much of a critical response to Smith at that time. And then if you, if you move forward and you look at the next major figures in political economy, you'd be looking at Thomas Robert Malthus and David Ricardo as you make the turn into the 1800s. You'd be looking at John Stuart Mill. And they... For the most part, they have nothing but reverence for Smith and build upon the things that he was describing. Ricardo talks more about trade theory and gives us the idea of comparative advantage. Malthus gives us a very dismal view of society with his population theorem, essentially. But as you and I have discussed before, there are elements in Smith which talk about decline and decay and even stationary states in terms of the paths that societies can take. Right. And I wanted to talk about that for a moment. And there is a bit in Smith where he's talking about in The Wealth of Nations that it's in this progressive state 
that while society is advancing, that people are happiest and most comfortable. But then when you reach a society that's stationary or declining, that it gets very dull or in the declining case, very melancholy. So could you talk a little bit about that whole side of Smith? There's two guiding principles in Smith. In the theory of moral sentiments, he says, as humans, we have a fundamental universal principle where we tend to sympathize, or perhaps empathy is the better word, but that's, that's the basis on which the theory of moral sentiments goes forward. You and I sympathize with one another, and that provides a self-regulating force in our lives so that I won't hurt you necessarily because I know how it feels if you were to hurt me. And then if we bring a third person in, we expand almost like fractals. We expand throughout the whole world. And so it's, in some ways it's our capacity to empathize with the plight of others. In the wealth of nations, the central organizing principle is that we have a basic human propensity to, in his words, truck, barter, and exchange. And so that's to be social. So in the theory of moral sentiments, we're social because we're empathizing and we build a just and virtuous society around our capacity to empathize and we act ethically and morally. In the wealth of nations, we have this propensity to exchange. I have a more critical problem with the propensity to exchange, believe it or not, because it seems to me the vast number of years in any notion of human existence are not characterized by exchanging. They're characterized by what Carl Polanyi, a very, very fond book uh, of mine is uh, Carl Polanyi's book, The Great Transformation. And for listeners who've never read that, I would really recommend that book. The Great Transformation is the best book, in my opinion, on the transition from feudalism to capitalism. But one of the things Polanyi says is that transition brings with it, in contrast to free markets, free markets bring more regulation and regulated behavior, even if the rules are somewhat unwritten, they are understood. But it brings more regulated behavior than any way of constructing an economic system before that time. And he characterizes all of the economic systems before capitalism or market-oriented exchange as being based upon the principle of reciprocity and redistribution. So you scratch my back, I scratch your back, we both get our back scratched. Or through redistribution, all of us benefit as well as the least person among us, I suppose. But that's the social organizing principle on an economic basis for most of human history. And so when we look at Smith, in the wealth of nations, he extols the virtues of truck, barter, and exchange. He says that has existed throughout human history, and that's the motive mechanism for the transition from anything that previously existed, and he can observe it, as I noted earlier today, in the world around him. But it also is the motor mechanism that, that brings us greater and greater well-being through having more and more stuff. The key to it, though, comes through the division of labor. And just today in my seminar, we were talking about Chapter 8 of The Wealth of Nations, which is about wages. It's in the wage discussion that we get into the trajectory of societies. And so there's a discussion in that chapter about China because he has heard, he has not visited, but he 
has read and spoken of people with firsthand accounts of China, and he knows through historical accounts that China has existed for thousands of years in a stationary state. And so he asks why, and basically because it's lived or people live there under custom and tradition, and they do not actively pursue a further expansion in their division of labor. But what he also talks about in Chapter 8 is he talks about power relationships where it's easier for the producers, he calls them the masters, it's easier for the masters to combine than the workers to combine. And he anticipates unions because workers do combine, but masters, he said, have a much easier time combining and then imposing their collective self-interest, which is to reduce wages. And this has very important contemporary context, but to reduce wages for workers as a whole. So consequently, in those nations or those societies where wages are declining, those nations and those societies are in fact declining and getting relatively worse off. Where wages are rising, those societies are growing and advancing and becoming better off. And that has real contemporary relevance, especially for the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm struck by another portion of Smith's work in when he talks about this final stage where wages keep rising, but then the competition everywhere is great. So then the ordinary profit is as low as possible. Smith writes about such a state is that the usual market rate of interest would be so low as to render it impossible for any but the very wealthiest people to live upon the interest of their money. And all people of small or middling fortunes would be obliged to superintend themselves the employment of their stocks. It would be necessary that almost every man should be a man of business or engage in some sort of trade. And in many ways, that seems to me to reflect a lot of the structure of where the modern U.S. economy appears to be heading with a really low rate of interest and lots of startups where it just seems like people are worshiping startups everywhere. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And two thoughts on, on what you brought up. Out of that wage discussion, there are real discussions of the incentive. He talks about the granting of monopolies for the companies that are moving into colonies and how the government grants those monopolies, but then that creates unfair terms of trade. You would think that you're reading something out of uh, outsourcing offshore in the last 30 or 40 years in the highest income nations in the world in contemporary terms. Because he's essentially talking about setting up lower cost, lower wage producing environments and how that ends up being detrimental to the nation as a whole and actually has the potential to destroy employment and jobs by, as you said, creating the competitive context, pitting, as Marx put it, workers against workers in what became for Marx the industrial reserve army of the unemployed. In a contemporary context, just as you know, my own personal experience, which and Smith encourages us, that's the great thing, and I would encourage listeners why he's such a good read, is he wants you to impose your own experience into the book, into your reading of the book. He wants you to identify with what he's saying in terms of your particular experience. My particular experience in this case 
with students is I tell my students now, the U.S. Labor Department, the students who are preparing to graduate, the, the graduate placement office and, and the, the jobs placement office in college and universities is telling students, oh, you're going to have eight or nine different jobs now over the course of your life. I tell the students, that's a myth. You're probably going to have to have two or three streams of income that you and only you can determine in order to make your way through an average lifetime if you have an average lifetime from this point in time forward. And so you are essentially an independent contractor and you have to control your own destiny. I think that's a very important distinction to make. And I think that kind of goes back to the points you're making about the transition from feudalism to capitalism and what the actual, the boots on the ground reality was for people living through that transition. The wage system of earning a wage, of becoming your own contractor became something that was was very different from the feudalistic system of doing your work for that feudal lord. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it was like for the person living through this kind of transition, what it was like for somebody living through the feudalistic system transitioning into that capitalistic kind of world. That's a great question. It's a good thing for us to be talking about. Smith is somewhat idealistic about it. On the one hand, the conservative members of my discipline would use Smith and use him ideologically in that way because he's extolling the virtues of competition and you too can succeed and so on and so on and so on. But the Smith that's also present in the book is much more of the, not quite a doomsayer, but he's, he's very cautious. When it comes to this transition from feudalism to the commercial society, he idealizes it in terms of the relationship between the town and the countryside. And so the people are in the countryside and they get to produce now for the town. And so they bring their produce to the markets that are in the town, be it on a particular day of a week and then eventually maybe five days a week or, or so on and so on. And so it's the reciprocal dynamic that begins to occur over sort of extensive development between the town and its surrounding countryside that creates this dynamic where the division of labor begins to expand and fill in the gaps. I suppose the gap is eventually characterized as suburbia. <laughs> the, the other thing to note, though, is so there's this ideal notion of the transition and that the transition is relatively smooth and smith. When you read Karl Marx, and we, as I said, my students will be reading again as the second book in my course this semester, we read Marx's Capital. And the way I read Marx's Capital is I start with the last seven or eight chapters in the book, which are purely historical. There's very little of Marx's categorical analysis in there. And it is a historical account of the enclosures in England that are going concurrently at this time, which have started a century earlier than Smith, but are really well underway. And I believe that that's why Smith is so prone to use to describe what would be called the capitalist today or the business person. Smith uses the word master. And right on the heels of the chapter I was des describing, the wages chapter, is a chapter describing what rent is. And the relationship with rent, as you work through the text in The Wealth of Nations, is initially where the folks 
who it's like Downton Abbey. Everybody in America is fascinated by Downton Abbey. Now. <laughs> the folks on the estate are giving some share of their produce, their annual produce of their labor in rent to the quote Lord Master. And that's what makes the Lord Master rich, is the Lord Master is rich in land by heredity and then gets this tribute or this share of the annual produce of each person on the estate. But Smith calls that rent. And of course, rent eventually takes the form of money rent. But for me, as we read that, we discussed that chapter actually today, I was thinking back to this master relationship where really the folks who are on the estate tied to the land without ownership rights, that system is a stationary system. It's not a growing system. There's no enhancement of the division of labor. The goal is simply to do as well this year as you did last year. That's the overriding goal. It's not growth. And it's a very harmonious notion, and no one really necessarily questions their relationship to the master. They may have aspirations to be a master, but there's no verticality, so they can't be a master. And that takes me to the real answer to the question, which is the enclosure movement, when you juxtapose Smith's account with Marx's account, Marx's account, it's horrific because the commercial incentives come, the land is suddenly more valuable, the land can yield its produce with much fewer workers and with greater mechanization. The people who are on the land are thrown off the land. They own nothing. They migrate to the urban cities. The cities and the immediate surrounding environments in the cities are supposed to absorb that labor in terms of the, the rise of manufactories, manufactories, which is where manufacturing comes from, the modern factory system. But as we know, that's a very slow and protracted transition and to read about that we just go to dickens right i wanted to talk a little bit about the growth dynamic in a minute one of the things that makes smith really interesting is he's talking about economic and commercial relationships but he's also doing it in the context of human nature and what we're inclined to do as part of our human nature and could you talk a little bit about how common this was at this time. Was this a, a novel approach to commenting on the economic structure? Also, what really was Smith's view of human nature that he's describing as it fits into this commercial context? First, I'd be clear. I think to understand Smith's goal, and his goal is, he is he's in the position of envy because he looks how nascent science is explaining the order of the physical world. And in his mind, with Newtonian physics and so on, and the principle of gravitation in particular, he probably thinks they've nailed it. They've, they've got it. And so he then turns and asks, what about the social world? What is the equivalent? And we've talked about this already today, but what is the equivalent of the force of gravity? that provides the cohesion for society. And not just the cohesion for society, because it's very easy to see that cohesion in the context of a centrally planned or what other people have called a command economy, i.e. feudalism, i.e. capitalism. But let's stick with feudalism, where the goal, as I said moments ago, 
is simply to do as well this year as you did last year. And the only thing that screws up is drought, plague. If someone had problems in their own society and they came and conquered you, that provided the greatest shock to your system normally. Otherwise, as Smith said, we're in China. There's stasis, but we have no sense of of people's motivations in that society. Are they stultified by stasis or... Is it a situation that was most often found among native populations in North and South America? I've just finished reading Thomas Mann's wonderful book, 1491. I don't know why it took me five or six years since its publication to read it. It was actually recommended to me by a park ranger at Montezuma's Castle in Verde, Arizona, a month ago. And it's an amazing book because Mann claims there were He claims there were upwards of 120 million Indians in North and South America before the arrival of Columbus at the maximum point, and that it was smallpox that killed 97% of them. Wow. Yeah, but man has a very romantic notion of what it was like to live as an Indian. I mean, there were aggressive behaviors, particularly among the, the Aztecs, toward their own and toward other native populations. But by and large, man provides a very idealistic look at what life was like. The last chapter of the book, which I finished just the other night, talks about the folks who were perhaps captured by, and and I use the word Indians now because that's what man suggests that we really should use, not Native Americans, Native South Americans. So I've gone back to Indians. I'm not going to worry about being politically correct on that. But... Man suggests that the folks who were actually captured, either in disputes or so on, and were held in tribes for periods of time and then went back to live with the early white settlers, this was true in Jamestown, that many, many of them eventually (laughs) decided to go live back with the Indians because they felt that it was a better way of life. Hmm. And I think that raises somewhat fundamental questions because I think Smith wrestles with this. I mean, he knows that people, for the bulk of human history, are not motivated by the notion that growth is good. And I think this is one of the most important contemporary contexts of his writing for us, because everyone assumes that he extols the virtues of capitalism, even though, again, we can't call it capitalism, but commercial society. And I'm not sure that you can make that claim from him. Because even in his early passages talking about the division of labor, he says the division of labor brings all these wonderful benefits of more stuff. And there's a passage in The Wealth of Nations, a very great passage, where the person who is poorest in his society at the writing of The Wealth of Nations in 1776, the poorest person actually is wealthier because that person commands more labor than what a king of 10,000 naked savages enjoys in the way of luxuries and conveniences, necessaries and conveniences in life. And so this fundamental question, and that's the question I've wrestled with for years, I wrestled with it in graduate school in many seminars, what lit something in humanity that suddenly made us think that it was necessary to have more, constantly necessary to have more, and to surround ourselves with more and more stuff. 
And so Smith seems to indicate, because again, going back to what we've said already, that this propensity to truck, barter, and exchange, that, that there's somehow a human propensity. And in doing that, we see the benefits of the division of labor specializing. But then he flips around within a matter of pages, and he says, you know, the division of labor can be pretty stultifying if you're sitting there doing the same repetitive task over and over and over and over again. And Marx ended up calling that the alienation of labor, but there's some of that in Smith. So it's really difficult to pinpoint. I mean, was it a propensity for discovery? Did we want to know what was over the next hillside? Why did explorers go into the Far East? Why did Marco Polo do what he did? Why did the people sail west from Portugal and discover they didn't fall off the face of the world? What is it in humans? Is that part of being human directly connected with acquisition and acquisitiveness and the notion, you know, the American dream? I want my sons and daughters to be better off than I was. What is better off? Better off means more commodities. Better off means where I sit in upstate New York, the fastest growing industry is the storage unit. In the U.S., it's a $30 billion industry. So now I'm being an extra environmentalist, okay? Mm -hmm. It's just we fill our houses with stuff. When there's too much stuff in our houses, we move it up to our attics if we have an attic. We fill our garage so we can't put a car in our garage if we have a car and if we have a garage. And then when that's not enough, we actually rent a storage unit to store the commodities that we've acquired, but we don't want to divorce ourselves from. So that's like the legacy of <laughs> that's the legacy of capitalism, isn't it? That is when, the when our kids look back, our great great grandchildren look back at this time, and they're like, "Great granddad, what was capitalism like?" And we'll be like, "Well, Sonny, we had McMansions and we had storage units, and it was great. It damn near <laughs> smothered me under a pile of commodities." <laughs> <laughs> so, is that drive something that we're stuck with to want more? You know, will will we find ourselves at a point sometime in the future? where maybe we're not able to have as much as we do right now or even have the illusion that we'll have that much, but people will still be striving for it. Oh, and you've had many, many people on these podcasts talk about that, and they talk about it in such wonderful ways, and your listeners should go back and listen to them if they haven't heard some of them. But I don't know what our legacy is. It can't be sustained, though. And I don't think it's a rebuke to Adam Smith fundamentally. I'm not so sure that that's what he was advocating. I think he would advocate limits to growth, potentially. And when we limit growth, there's this notion that somehow we're giving up something that's fundamental and essential to what it is to be human. But I increasingly disagree. I mean, I went to China 13 months ago and spent a month there. And... It was everything that I had read about in Frederick Engels' Conditions of the English Working Class in 1844. Mm. It was unbelievable what I saw. The pollution, I mean, it just can't continue. I, I have mild asthma, and I was in respiratory difficulty. My asthma is really mild, but I was in respiratory difficulty for a month afterward, just based on what I had been breathing for a month 
in January of 2012. That is not sustainable. <laughs> and here's a really interesting thought. You know, you hear people talk about Japan over the last three decades. You know, the, the GDP growth is really anemic. It's about a half of a percent a year since 1980 by most reliable measures of gross domestic product. The economy has actually been stimulated significantly more than at any time in three decades by the devastation of the tsunami. As you could well imagine, mm -hmm. the rebuilding has actually boosted their GDP, even in the last two years, closer to the 3 or 4% range. But before then, I look at the Japanese. Now, admittedly, I have not spent a lot of time in Japan, but they have one of the highest rates of longevity. The average Japanese now lives, I think, to be 82 years old versus 78 in the United States. And I just wonder, has their growth sort of plateaued and are they relatively happy or do they find contentment and do they find value in not being a high-consuming economy? Because the growth in the GDP is tied to high rates of consumption. I mean, what does the U.S. have to do to finally drag itself completely out of the so-called Great Recession. We're supposed to spend like anything. We're supposed to get out the credit cards, pile them up with more unsecured debt. We're supposed to spend, spend, spend. But to me, that's not going to be a very healthy response to what we've seen over the last five years. Right. And from your perspective and looking at all of the economic history that you cover with, with Smith and, and Marx and with many other economic thinkers, does our economy really have to grow in the context of capitalism? Well, I'm 55 years old, and that's the biggest question now at this point in my, quote, career life. We started this discussion today with Smith and his times and having the, the ability to be cloistered and read books all day and when you're an academic, I mean, you have such a wonderful life <laughs> because you have the freedom to think. And with the freedom that's afforded to me now, my big question thoughts are, does the GDP have to grow? I have two kids. I've raised two kids. One graduated from college last year. The other's a sophomore in high school. And we were supposed to go out at a very young age, and we were supposed to buy the stuff that I call plastic land. It's all that big, heavy, you know, high-density plastic, the toys, the little, the sandbox, the little car, the lawnmower, the indestructible plastic that'll be here in 10,000 years that's in primary colors for kids, red, blue, and yellow. And when we were done with it, when my kids outgrew it, conventional economic reasoning says I should throw it in the trash, it should go to the landfill, and I should then buy them baseball gloves and baseball hats and lacrosse sticks and so on, and Abercrombie and Fitch clothes and all the rest of it. But what we did instead is I live on a nice street, fairly dense housing. We simply looked at the next household that was having young children, and we passed it along. And so now, 20 years later, it's only 20 years into its 10,000-year depreciation. It looks as good as it did when we have it. And there's five generations of different kids on the street who've used it. But I haven't added any value to the economy. My behavior's been detrimental. <laughs> right. We've 
spoken about Smith today in, in the context of a lot of what he's told us about our economic history. What do you think he has to tell us about our economic future? Are, are there some things that we can draw from Adam Smith's work that have not only framed the last few hundred years of economic development, but maybe could frame the next hundred years of economic development? Well, for the most positive thing, I would think you would turn first to the theory of moral sentiments. And then I would read the passages in The Wealth of Nations where he seems to glorify wealth, but he doesn't say anything pejorative necessarily about China in terms of how it has been at that time not progressing, but subsisting at a very high level of providing for its people for centuries. And so I think if you turn to the moral sentiments and you think of having an objective of a society that's driven by social justice and concerns for one another and compassion and humility, but there still is a distinction of ranks in his view. I think that's where you would turn first in terms of any vision of an optimistic future. That was the wonderful thing with my work with Bob Heilbrunner because he he was constantly throwing the word vision out there and the vision. And what he admired about the economics of Smith and Marx and Keynes and the classicals, the economics of long ago, is they were concerned about questions of income inequality. They were concerned about questions of poverty. They were concerned about the abnormal exercise of power and privilege in markets by elites. And in modern contemporary neoclassical economics, we, we really assume that all away in terms of the propositions by which the logic of the theory works. We don't have power relationships in markets, and we really don't even acknowledge the very nature of the competitive context of how most human beings in today's world work. And building on that a little bit, I was wondering if anything that you see in Smith's writings that gives us an insight into our banking and currency problems of today, or any commentary that Smith had on currency or banking? Most of the discussion of any currency or money had to do with the fact that money is historically specific. Money is only necessary when exchange gets to a certain point of complexity. I mean, if you think about the complexity of contemporary life, what I like to tell students is if I go to McDonald's and I get something off the dollar menu, let's say I order a cheeseburger, that is a commodity cheeseburger. But in that commodity cheeseburger that I spend $1 for, there are at least 20 commodities. There's this funny, waxy-looking yellow cheese, which consists of milk and some kind of binders that I'd rather not imagine. There's the bread, and is it really bread? Is it wheat that's in there? Is it starch? But that's part of the commodity. There's the beef itself. Is it really beef? Or we're now seeing across the world, is it cut with horse meat? <laughs> There's the paper packaging and the dye that goes into making a cheeseburger wrap yellow. So there's 20 different commodities. And all money does is it would be very difficult, as I say to my students, you're here, you pay tuition, I'm at a private college. So I get paid, and I get paid money, and the reason I get paid money income is so I don't have to take, say, 10 of you with me this afternoon when I go to the supermarket 
or the organic food store to buy uh, a basket full of groceries. Because what I'd essentially have to do is I'd have to strike a deal with the person who owns the store and say, okay, I'm leaving these people off to bag and run the register and stock the shelves. How many hours times the 10 of them and what commodities can I put in my basket? That's all money does, and I think that's all Smith would say that money does. Now, I say that when close to 200 pages of a 1,000-page Wealth of Nations in its full edition is called The Digression on Silver. And the digression on silver is probably the best historical account we have of the evolution of silver as money up to 1776. So it's well worth reading, but he does say at other points about how the Tartars think an ox is the most precious thing in their society, whereas the mercantilists think that they should be running around, the Spanish in particular, running around the world and the Western Hemisphere, conquering people for their gold and bringing it back and stuffing it away in the royal treasury and not letting it circulate. And he says of the real notion of wealth, it's the Tartar notion that the ox is worth something that's the closer to the truth. So he has a rather straightforward view of money. But as we know, in the absence of a gold standard, money is the be-all, end-all of lots of people in today's world. That's very true that money does rule most of our society in so many different ways. I'm wondering, how do we get past that idea that money is so very important to success and to happiness and to being the person that you are? How do we get past that idea that this is the most important thing in our lives right now and see the world in the bigger picture that encompasses a world where money isn't really the most important thing and human happiness and enjoyment and care for each other is really the most central topic. Well, in my own city of Oneana, New York, the whole notion is bound up in trying to build a more sustainable local economy. And part of that is going down to the merchants who have shops on our main street and purchasing the items that you need from them, even though it may cost you 20% more than the Walmart that sits a mile and a half on the outskirts of town or going online and ordering it from Amazon. But what you're doing with your transaction, it's now you're paying more for that thing that you're buying. It's an expression of that you are helping the person who you are obtaining that thing from sustain their life as well as your life is sustained. And so your question is a huge one, and it involves a fundamental shift in human behavior. And the fundamental shift is to probably consume less, pay more for what you consume, but understand in the process of what you are doing that that transaction, that exchange is, and we can take that lesson from Smith in terms of the logic and how it works, that provides their ability to enjoy a similar standard of living and well-being. I think the lesson perhaps is in Smith. It's in empathy. It's in human connection. Most transactions today are done with complete anonymity. If I buy something online, I don't even have a verbal communication with someone. <laughs> if I go to the shopping center or the mall, I always found it amusing when the person said, have a nice day. They wanted to show an intimacy with me that really didn't exist because I was never going to see them again. 
I was simply buying something and they were ringing me out at the register. And I think if we can restore a sense that this whole action, the act of producing things and contributing to our well-being through the things that we produce, and the individual action of exchanging and conducting transactions with others who have produced things or who have obtained things, that in obtaining our things from them and redeveloping those close empathetic, that takes us back to Smith's sympathy principle, if we have an empathetic connection and understanding the importance of this, then maybe we will change direction. So in closing out, I wanted to ask if people do want to start digging into Smith's work, what's some advice that you have for them? Because we don't talk the way that he did back then. And oh. so it can be rather dense for yes. a lot of people to start reading it. You know, it's not exactly your your beach reading, right? But no. what's your advice for people who want to start learning more? So you turn to Smith, and I did tell you that I would shamelessly promote our book. Our book is called The Essential Adam Smith. It was published in 1986. It's available in paperback for under $20. And we contracted with Norton, W.W. Norton & Company in New York, and it is really a Norton anthology. A lot of listeners will know Norton anthologies of literature where you read condensed versions of great works of literature. Well, our book is a condensation of Smith, but it has the astronomy essay, the theory of moral sentiments, and the wealth of nations. And we have wonderful introductions that I wrote with Bob Heilbrunner. So they help acclimate you to the book. But the book, and when you're reading it, you're absolutely correct. It's the kind of book that you actually have to be patient. So I advocate patience, taking a long time to read it. Cherish what you're reading. I mean, the words that come to mind are patience, savor, nuggets, relax and empathize. So be patient, savor what you're reading, take it in little nuggets, little chunks, relax. But the empathy part is think about it in terms of your own experience. That's his method. His method, especially in the theory of moral sentiments, is to lead you on a personal journey of self-examination of your own thinking, your own motivations, and your own behavior. Frames are scattered all around Faded pictures on the floor These cold rooms echo wraps up our conversation with Lawrence Malone and it was really great to talk to him about what it really means when people are referencing the invisible hand and the history of capitalism and it ties in so well with the interview with Frank Trentman about his book The Empire of Things because 
when we think about the big picture perspective that we have at the Extra Environmentalist and thinking about, you know, what it, it looks like for our planet with our species to continue to exist here, the aspects that lead us to a culture of consumerism are so broad and deeply rooted in what it means to be human. And it's so much bigger than just individual choices and individual responsibility of, you know, voting with your dollar and choosing whether to buy fair trade or not. And all those things make a difference, but those things that compel us to consume are really a core part of humanity. That's so true, Justin. And I, I was over browsing on Amazon Go, this new service that Amazon has just rolled out. So now that I don't even have to talk to a cashier anymore, I don't have to make my purchases. You know, now I can just go into a store, take my sandwich off the shelf and just leave. I don't have to talk to anybody. I don't have to even interact with a single human being going into a store. And I think that this new service kind of exemplifies and really brings out and really highlights the way consumerism in the United States has gone. The removal of all interaction that has happened and the removal of all interactions has led to this almost isolated consumering, the buying in a vacuum where you can go into a store now or just online on your computer, on your smartphone, pull down a humongous list of pretty much anything you could possibly think of and then have it arrive at your doorstep and have that fill this need inside of you, this almost this achy need to buy new things, to hold new things, to fill your home with so many new gadgets and so many new technologies that it just boggles your mind when you think about the way that people used to think about goods and services. You know, in the interview about the Empire of Things, he was talking about how Commerce has been this social activity where people would come to the marketplace and interact with one another and talk and barter and, and haggle and say, oh, I don't want to pay that much for this, that candlestick. I will give you this horse for $300 million or something like that. And that whole aspect of bartering and commerce has disappeared. And now we're left with this place where it's almost like a Netflix of stuff where you can go on to Amazon or walmart.com or any number of websites and just buy till your heart's content and fill your basket with stuff that you probably don't need but it's cool to have and it feels good when I spend my money and I am able to get that brand new jacket or that brand new bag sent to my house and you know it's it's just wonderful so yes there is a really really interesting dichotomy of consumerism that has happened in this country that has really highlighted itself in the past you know, 15 years with the new advent of technology into the consumerism process. And also the way that our middle class has kind of boosted this buying power of the middle class to a, a level that has historically never really been at. Yeah. And these new apps are enabling a type of consumption that our ancestors could have never imagined, especially back in the time of Adam Smith. And it's meaning, like you're saying, that the social interaction part is going away. And it's going to be really interesting because all of those frictions that might stop you from buying something in a store, if it's just an app that you're picking stuff up and it's automatically billed to you, that's fundamentally changing the social aspects of the marketplace in in unforeseen ways. You know, it's going to be interesting to see the types of things that people buy 
when you don't have to ring it up in front of a person at the checkout at the end of the day. You know, will I buy more cupcakes? I don't know. Maybe I won't feel shame if I walk to the front of the grocery store and my entire basket is just cupcakes and and cake. Not that I do that, but um, (laughs) maybe I will when I don't have to answer to anyone or no one gives me a disapproving stare. You won't see that shameful look in your cashier's eye as you ring up five pounds of cake and cupcakes and lard yeah so (laughs) but i think that goes back to something that was in the discussion with frank about whether we're dematerializing or not and we've touched on this a little bit in different episodes like the one with douglas rushkoff recently but as technology is changing the way that we consume and the types of things that we consume and we're getting so much more processing power per phone and uh, value per iPad and so on, you know, is it leading to reduced material consumption in the physical world? And so far, it hasn't. By every metric, we're using just as much material input per person around the world as we were 10 years ago, and more in some cases. You know, you think about the elegance and sophistication of an iPad or iPhone in your hand, and you think, man, we've really advanced so much past the 19th century, but we're using even more coal per person than we did back then. A huge part of our modern world is run on these same industrial processes that were invented in 1890 and 1900 and 1910 to help us live. And so all of these things from shiny new technology run on that. And it's easy to forget that, but it's tough to make a case that we're on the whole, dematerializing when that is happening. But maybe these technologies will allow us to do that in the future. But so far, that's not the case. More consumption, even of experiences, even of of services, are leading to more material consumption overall around the world. Well, when I think about the materials that I had consumed maybe 10 years ago, it was mostly around media. It was about food, some clothing items. But now, really, my media consumption the items that have lined my shelves in the past, the books, the CDs, the DVDs, those items have really disappeared in a lot of ways and have been replaced with iTunes and Netflix and Hulu and those services. And the books that I read now are mostly audiobooks. I mean, I'm ashamed to say that I, I read much more through audio now than I have in the past. And maybe there's some shame there, but it's most convenient for me to consume my media through my ears instead of with my eyes. And the actual media itself that has lined my shelves, that has been the pounds and pounds of books as I've moved from place to place throughout my life, has now been replaced with a iPad or with a phone. And so all those books that I used to have no longer exist. So that's one way I suppose that materialism has helped me to declutter my life a bit. Uh, Justin, question for you. How many pieces in your wardrobe do you not wear? Like of the clothes that you have, how much do you think you don't wear? I probably wear like 80% of my wardrobe. And that's only because I've made a very significant effort to clean out stuff and clutter over the last few years. And without that, it probably would have been closer to like 50%. And that's because of these things that we were talking about with Frank about how, you know, textile manufacturing technology has made it so that the stuff is just so cheap. So we can buy so much more of it than we used to. Buying 
textiles and clothing a long time ago meant that you were getting a hold of a treasured possession. And this stuff really did not change all that much. And it was very expensive to buy clothes. But now, you know, you can go to an outlet store or something and just buy like tons of t-shirts that, you know, aren't too bad. They're not exactly fashionable. They're not great, but they're not horrible either. And you can just get a bunch of them. Yeah, you can go to a thrift store and buy them by the pound. Have you been to one of those stores? (laughs) What? Buy them by the pound? America is crazy. We do not have this in Canada. Oh, the Canadians. They don't have many things in Canada. It's true. Uh, (laughs) One interesting counter movement that I've recently been studying and listening to, the, the Minimalist podcast, has a really interesting take on the way that people in this country have been consuming. And that is just to move against it. Do you really need all the things that you have in your home? And in fact, they've done a few exercises where where you can actually gauge those things. So one of the exercises that they prescribe is a packing party where you take all of your possessions that you have in your home, put them in boxes over the course of like a day or two. And then over the next month, you only unpack the items that you actually need. So if you actually need the silverware for eating or some plates or some, you know, like maybe you need some pens to write in your notebook or you need your toothbrush or your deodorant or something like that, you end up unpacking only the items that you're actually using within that month. And the rest of the stuff, do you really need it? It helps you to question the fact that you really need very little to get by. And you might think if you've never really heard about minimalism before, you you know, you've never really really thought about what you consume, you might think you need a heck of a lot. But if you've ever been backpacking before, you've ever been camping, you've ever been on a long trip for like multiple months and lived out of a suitcase where you, you know, have the same few clothes for months at a time, it really is a wake-up call. You you realize you don't need as much as you think. And that packing party kind of is a very wonderful illustration of that, of, of really figuring out what it is that makes you happy. And in some cases, I think that having less stuff makes you even happier. You know, if you, when you realize that you don't need all that stuff you spent your whole life collecting and filling up your home with, that you don't need it. And and actually that stuff ends up owning you in a lot of ways that it can make you just feel really good not to have to own all that stuff and have to carry it around and keep it warm and, and take it with you as you move from place to place. Yeah. And especially if you're part of the middle class in the United States, there's such an incentive to just buy and accumulate so many things. And this isn't the case in, in a lot of countries, but definitely in the United States, it's so easy to just accumulate and pile on and and get things that it's so easy and there's so many ads and uh, sales and things that push you to do it and spaces are are relatively cheap in so many places like North Carolina where you're you're at Seth it's like hey you know getting a multi-bedroom house isn't that much of a stretch for a lot of people and then you got to fill it and and so there's that incentive to do it but you know I want to come back to one last thing that stood out for me as a theme in the conversation with with Frank Trentman on Empire of Things, which had to do with the idea of novelty and how that plays into what we want to consume as humans. And, you know, I always think about what that means for resource consumption. And it takes me back to an article I read about a year ago from the CEO at H&M, the big clothing chain, where he said the no-growth economy would be doomed for the clothing industry. 
And, you know, at least he came out and said it because there's so many stores like Zara and H&M that make clothes where turnover is so fast. I mean, they're just taking the latest styles and adapting that to what mainstream consumption and tastes are and just like pushing that and churning that so much. And I see these stores like Urban Outfitters is another good example where they try to make trendy things that are so obviously only going to be in style for one season and then you're just going to have to throw it out. And if you go into those stores and feel the fabric, like it's just not very well made. Like it's made to be thrown away and terrible. So does this novelty idea that drives consumption, especially in in clothing, but in so many things like phones and technology, does it have to consume resources? You know, can we do things like unboxing parties like you're talking about? Packing parties. Packing parties, that's what they are. Can we do things like packing parties to find out what we really need and then find ways to get that novelty without having to buy new stuff that's so materially intensive? You know, like clothing swaps are a great example where you can get new clothes for you that aren't necessarily new off the shelf but they're new from someone else. Do you think the stores of the future, the Amazon goes of the future, you could just as easily go in and turn in something that you don't really want anymore and leave it, and then someone else could come and pick it up and find out that that's what they need to trade novelty? <laughs> well, I think that it's really interesting that you bring up the the devaluation that happens with technology and with cars. I think we were talking about this a couple years ago, Justin, about how much your phone loses value every month. And I think you're saying it's like 50% of your value of your phone is gone every month. So if you spend $100 on your phone, it's worth $50 next month. And then after that, it's worth $25. And then it's worth $12.5. And it just kind of keeps going down like that every single month. So by the time you're ready to turn it in, it's worth very, very little. And cars are the same way and computers are the same way. Tablets, you know, any sort of technology meets its life cycle obsolescence extremely fast. And we see that now even with like more like household items too, like stoves that burn out and toaster ovens that are not made to last. These planned obsolescence that happen now in technology and in in consumer items are very much a part of the whole life cycle because buying stuff has to happen for these places to exist and new iterations have to come along so that we can support a whole advertising industry and a whole media that that moves along with the advertising and the shows that support the media and it's all linked together into this wonderfully grotesque world of just stuff that you just have to keep consuming to be a part of the American system in so many ways. What you're talking about is how everything is so geared to meet that human drive for novelty because the novelty drive is so powerful that we've geared everything in our economic system around that, of just meeting that need. And so could we we find the way to fulfill the need for novelty in a less crazy way than having you know new model years of cars every year? Like, does car technology really change that much to need a 2015 Chevy Impala and then a 2016 Chevy Impala and so on? Chevy, don't sue us for that. (laughs) And, you know, it, it even it even crosses into the line of dating now, too. You know, you have apps like Tinder and and OkCupid where if you get tired of your current boyfriend or girlfriend, you could just swipe left or right and find yourself a new one. Planned obsolescence of your spouse as well. Yeah, exactly. It's so tempting for so many couples to do it, and you hear all these breakup stories built on that 
narrative of, you know, oh, he was on Facebook or some dating app or something because it's just such a, a simple, tempting thing to look at. And it's once again built around that drive for novelty. Absolutely. And novelty is something that humans have built into their evolutionary cycle for so many generations. And it's it's helped and been very, very powerful driver of human development in so many different ways. But now in a lot of ways, it's been co-opted and it's now being used to sell us stuff. And I think that questioning this obsolescence and this novelty seeking behavior is definitely something that as as educated, informed humans that we we have the responsibility to do. And I think Frank's interview really helps us to highlight that. Yeah. and, And also the conversation with Lawrence Malone as well and thinking about what it really means with the invisible hand, you know, the next time someone you know, is misrepresenting the work of Adam Smith. You know where to go. You know where to send them. So they understand that the invisible hand really means that it's just the order that happens, the spontaneous order in society. It's not that greed is good. But speaking about invisible hands that are throwing some donations our way, we wanted to thank some of the listeners who are chipping in to contribute to the extra environmentalist coffers. Absolutely. We couldn't do it without these wonderful listeners of the show. So thank you so very much to Brian in Oregon for sending in a generous, generous donation. And definitely Scott as well in Ontario for sending in a very generous donation. We thank you so much for that, Scott. And we're going to get a t-shirt out to you as soon as we can. Thanks again to the listeners of the Extra Environmentalist podcast and for you for listening today. If you would like to listen to more episodes of the Extra Environmentalist, we have a ton of backlog episodes that you can go and listen to and you know burn onto a CD if you like real media or you can play it for your grandmother if you want her to hear about, about how things are taking over her life. If you want to listen on SoundCloud or Stitcher Radio, we have our episodes there. And if you'd like to join the discussion and talk with like-minded folks, Twitter and Facebook have an extra environmentalist presence as well. And also with the start of 2017, we've launched our new Extra Environmentalist Network website. Thanks to all of you who have been listening and donating throughout the years. You can find it at xenetwork.org. So the Energy Transition Show, our first partner show is up on there and we are taking subscriptions to the full version of that nothing's changing at the extra environmentalist it'll be the same and unfortunately as slow as ever we're working to try and get up to once a month but it's just uh with all of our uh phd work on my end and seth's job it's hard to put it out at that rate but we're we've got some new people working around us who are gonna help to make it faster in the coming year thanks again for listening to this episode of the action environmentalist you are our biggest fans for downloading this show and thank you so much for that happy 2017 every little thing you think that you need every little thing you think that you need every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have You gotta reach for And you gotta grab Oh, I bet that
that you'd be fine without it. So take your eyes away. Or take your eyes away. Life can be stressful here, though, because life is good, and so we want it to be better. And we get, we try to perfect everything in our lives, and, it, and it's like a job. Being a consumer is like a job. You have to make sure you get the best one. If you get a Blu-ray player, you gotta do research. You gotta look at reviews of a player. You gotta go on Amazon and read a really long review written by an insane person who's been dead for months. because he shot his wife and then himself after explaining to you that the remote is counterintuitive. It's got really small buttons on the remote, he said, before he murder-suicided his whole family. And now you're reading it and going, I don't know. I don't know which one to get, I don't know. I gotta get the best one. Why? Who are you, the king of Siam, that you should get the best one ever? I'm, bring me the best, who cares? They're all the same, these machines. They're all made from the same Asian suffering. There's no difference. 